0: Do you? I see. Well, you've come to the right place. This is On the Ledge Podcast, and I am Jane Perone. In this week's show, I'm giving you an update on all things peat-free, including an interview with new UK peat-free houseplant provider Gab and Green. If your name is Emily and you are a patron of On The Ledge and you did not receive your December mail out card despite being a signed up member and having given your address, you need to give me a shout. I know there's somebody called Emily whose card got returned to me, but there are literally loads of Emilies who are patrons. Uh, So I need to check which Emily it is who hasn't got their card. So Emily, have you got your card? (laughs) If not, please give me a shout and I will try to send you another one from that very specific shout out to another more general shout out to everybody in the LGBTQIA community. I want to hear from you. If you heard last week's show, you'll know I'm doing a special episode at the end of February asking people what the houseplants mean to you. Thanks to everyone who's already submitted theirs. But please, please do record something or or tap out a few notes in an email to me telling me what houseplants mean to you to celebrate LGBTQIA history month. And thank you to Fiona who became a crazy plant person this month. That most generous of people who just wants to throw down a dollar or a pound on their favourite podcast for no return whatsoever. Thank you, Fiona. And if you want to join her, details of Patreon and all the other ways of supporting On The Ledge are in the show notes. It was back in July 2019 that I first talked about Pete on On The Ledge. Well, the first time I devoted a whole show to it. I'm sure I had mentioned it before that. But this was part of my sustainability series but that was several years ago now, so it felt like time for an update on the subject of peat and houseplants. Where are we? What's happening? Is there good news? So in today's show, I'm going to be bringing you two interviews. The first is with Sally Morgan from the campaign called Peat Free April. And in the second interview, I talked to the co-founders of a new company selling peat free houseplants. They're called Geb and Green. But first up is Sally Morgan from Peat Free April. Sally is a garden writer, a botanist and a no-dig gardener and an important part of the Peat Free April campaign. So I wanted to start off by finding the current state of play with peat in the UK.
1: Hi, I'm Sally Morgan. I'm a garden writer botanist, uh, no-dig gardener, um, but I'm also a member of the Peat Free April campaign. Um, We've been in existence for three years to try and educate gardeners to avoid using peat in their gardens. Well, it's a great
0: thing to be educating people about because we've moved forward a little bit in terms of legislation, but I'm not sure we're quite there yet. Can you fill us in on the latest in terms of Government legislation on uh, peat
1: and growing media? Yeah, and it definitely goes back a long time. Um, it was Jeff Hamilton back in the 90s who first raised awareness of this issue, um, and it's been talked about ever since. So, where we're at at the moment was that back in August of 2022, after a consultation, where 95% of the consultees said they wanted a ban on the use of peat in horticulture, culture, the government said that they were going to do something about it, having said something 10 years previously, um, and it was all voluntarily agreed, um, and nothing happened. So the latest situation is, as we understand it, that they are hoping to um, stop the sale of retail peat, that's peat that's used in growing media and the like, by 2024. And there is some confusion over by, i.e. the beginning of or the end of. Um, And then they would then start implementing a ban on commercial use of horticulture, peat in horticulture. So that stuff that is used to raise plants, etc. by nurseries. And that was probably 2030. But other people have said it's 2028. And I've heard lots of conflict around this at the moment. The government has said that they're not in position to con- do anything immediately. It's been pushed back along with a lot of other legislation. So we're a little bit in limbo at the moment. But I think most people are agreed that the ban in 2024 will come about but it's what happens to the commercial growers after that and whether they get exemptions Um, that's up for grabs.
0: Yeah, that's a really key point, isn't it? And I think particularly for houseplant growers and buyers of houseplants, I'm wondering whether it's going to make a huge amount of difference given how many houseplants get imported from Europe. And and I presume that they are not going to be under any of the same restrictions, the eventual restrictions that UK growers will be under. Yeah,
1: quite right. And this is part of the industry's complaints about this legislation, should it come about, in that they are put at a disadvantage to all those imports from Holland. Although I do understand that in the EU, they too are now beginning to look at peat because when we go into looking at carbon accounting and trying to get to a net zero situation, the easiest way to achieve that is by stopping peat from being dug out of the ground. So yes, it's going to be an interesting situation. And when I talk to gardeners, they are completely oblivious in many cases of what medium the plants that they buy, what medium they've been raised in. And and that uh, applies to houseplants as well as just general nursery plants in garden centres. So it's a big unknown, um, which does need to be tackled. There does seem to be a subset of
0: gardeners who are very up to speed with all of this, but it does surprise me when you meet people and talk to people about how much lack of knowledge there is about peat-free, even now, when you've got major institutions like you know the National Trust and things, going peat free The message is slowly trickling through, but there's a lot of work to be done, I think, with informing people. And that's where, of course, peat free April comes in April's coming up. Have you got big plans for this year?
1: Oh, we hope so. We were really hopeful last year that we wouldn't actually have to do anything, that the legislation will be in place and we'd go yippee. Um, But yes, we will be running normal campaigns and we'll be looking for um, well-known garden uh, celebrities to to do some introductory stuff for us and videos that we can share. Um, and to continue pushing the message. But you're quite right. I mean, when I go to garden talks and I talk to the audience, um, they're almost a bit gobsmacked when I sort of say, well, this is why peat needs to stay in the ground. This is why you shouldn't use it. Even if it isn't the most perfect alternative, there is absolutely no reason why you should be using peat. You're just emitting, emitting so much carbon dioxide. And they are genuinely unaware of what they are doing and how to find out and obviously we now have the um, the guidance on the packs when you can buy um, bags of media and it will tell you about the sustainability of the materials that you are um, buying, but they're still not really aware of that. So there is still a lot of education to do, um, particularly I think about what the plant has been grown in. I think more people are aware of labeling and looking for that big peat-free sign on the front of the the bags because we always say to people if it doesn't say peat-free on the front it probably isn't peat-free um and they're getting that message i think at least keen younger gardeners i feel there's a lot of resistance in the older gardener um and i'm an older gardener myself so um I can, you know, they've grown up with using it for 30 years and they can't see a reason to not use it. But increasingly, I think as consumers, we need to question and ask the garden centres what are they doing? What are they buying? Who are they buying from? And what is the peak free status of those wholesale nurseries that they are buying from? I guess one of the things with houseplants is that you could fall into the trap
0: of thinking, well, you know, it's only a tiny pot with a very small amount of substrate in it. Surely, you know, my me buying a couple of plants from the garden centre that are planted in peat isn't, it's a very small amount of peat involved. And well, I do buy peat-free when I can. But my attitude to that is when you scale that up across all of the houseplants sold across the UK, that's a lot of peat. <laughs> I think it's easy to kind of fool ourselves to thinking that somehow house plants are some special exception and that it's OK. I mean, I don't know whether you grow any house plants, but I've been probably peat free of certainly of plants that I've been repotting and everything. I try to avoid buying ha- plants in peat, but it's not always possible. I have found that they are there's no problem with growing them in a peat free medium. You've just got to slightly adapt, but actually it's not that hard. But I do think there are lots of those little bags of houseplant compost that you buy that are particularly unclear about what's actually in them. Uh, those little five litre bags, it's not always very clear at all what, what you're getting. And often it's in small writing somewhere, but you've got to really search for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I do think every single bag matters because you say it's multiplied up to become, well, in the UK, we're looking at um two and a half million cubic metres of peat being used every day, uh, every year rather. And so every little tiny bit really does matter. And a lot of the growers who are looking for exemptions say, oh, it's really tricky to raise houseplants, Um, particularly tricky to raise uh, carnivorous plants, which I enjoy growing, um, and my uh, saracenas and the like. And they say, oh, no, you can't possibly grow those without peat-free. Uh, But when you do talk to the guys who do grow it peat-free, they have absolutely no problems. Um, So I think there's a little bit of myth being circulated about how tricky some of these plants are. And when you talk to botanic gardens and um, the Welsh Botanic Garden is particularly keen on being peat-free, they have lots of specialist plants, have absolutely no problems. Absolutely. Um, It's a little bit of trial and error. And you may fail. And I think this is the thing about peat-free. Um, there may be uh, adjustments you have to make and you may have the odd failure, um, but that's that's part of the course. And it's more important that that peat is in the ground to benefit biodiversity and carbon retention than it is in a little pot uh, in your house. Um, I have been talking to peat-free um, producers and they don't produce a houseplant one. And I think their main issue is the demand for um, house plant owners, and you may be advised on this, they like it sterilized. Um, and a lot of the peat-free guys say it's quite difficult to do that um, in economic terms. And um, so they're not providing any alternative media. So um, myself, my own plants are grown in my own good old compost from the garden, and I probably do get creepy crawlies crawling out of them. But in the end of the day, my roots are far healthier for that. I think that's a really
0: common strand that people sometimes there is a subset of houseplant growers who want their houseplants to be free of anything that might be alive other than a plant, which is obviously a very narrow idea of what's going on with houseplants. And yeah, I mean, there's lots of life in soil and not all of it is something that's going to cause problems to your plants and in fact most of it is going to help your house plants so that's an interesting one I think it's again a cultural change that needs to happen I mean I know a lot of gardeners are moving away from soil-based media altogether and using other things which again have their own carbon footprints like expanded clay pebbles and pond and things but yeah if you're going to use if you're going to use a a soil-based substrate then I mean, I personally I use um you I've used Dale Foot and I've also but I mainly use um Melcourt Silver Grow and it's great it's there's no problems on that front. The only thing I find is that you do get more fungus gnats I would say probably than using in the past when I've used uh peat based houseplant mixes. I think you probably have a few more fungus gnats, which people do have a rather overblown hate for. <laughs> But that is pretty easily solved. It's again, it just comes down to education, I think. Education all the way. So that's what we've got to all work on. Is there anything else that uh, about peat that we need to know coming up? I mean, once this ban comes into place, do you think there's going to be some growers that are going to be? I mean, even though all you all of this education, I think there's still some people who will be caught out by this uh, by this ban on peat-based substrates.
1: Yeah, and it, and it's a tricky one for some growers. Um, I was at the Oxford Real Farming Conference a couple of weeks ago. There was a session on organic growers and the use of peat for which there is a derogation. Um, and it's interesting. They can cope with nearly all of their growing in a peat-free medium. But the one that causes them the greatest problem is actually the vegetable growers who use blocks Um, rather than modules, and they've invested in blocks that basically compress the little square of compost. And so it holds together when they seed it and they move the transplants around. And those which are peat-free have a a tendency to crumble, whereas the peat ones hold their shape. And that is a big issue because there's no research going on to help them make that jump from peat uh, peat to peat-free, which they would dearly love to do. but from a technical point of view, it's causing them issues. Um, but I think other than that, I, I think it's a question of growers uh, and gardeners being a little bit more experimental and getting used to pushing their finger into the media to see what it's like for watering. Because I think the trick is that all the different peat-free media are, have got different ingredients in it from coir to wood to um, bracken and wool. And they all have slightly different Um, characteristics in terms of watering and nutrient retention. Um, And so I think growers will, they're desperate not to make any mistakes on a large scale. So for them, if they switch their media and they have a failure, then that's actually quite a big commercial impact on their profitability. And it's not quite the same as a gardener just having a couple of trays of failed seedlings. So it is this worry and they know how to work with Pete, They've done it for 30, 40 years. It works. They've got it down to a fine art. And now you're asking them to put something completely different in and, and learn how to use that and unfortunately, they haven't done anything for the last 20 years in preparation. And so now they really are on the back foot trying to catch up. Well, I'll put all the links for
0: Pete Free April into the show notes at janeperone.com At Pete Free April is where you are on Instagram, which is probably my listener's favourite social media. But I'll put all the other links into the show notes and um, hopefully lots of people will follow through on that. So thank you so much for joining me, Sally. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> So things are really starting to change but if you're looking to buy houseplants that don't have peat in them rather than just repot your existing houseplants into a peat-free mix it's sometimes very difficult to tell because lots of plants are coming from the Netherlands and other parts of Europe and they don't carry any indication of peat content and that is where companies like Harriet's Plants, who I've interviewed before on the show, and another new company called Geb and Green come in. Geb and Green have launched in the last few weeks here in the UK, selling houseplants that are peat-free and doing it on quite a large scale. So I was keen to find out what they're doing and why. So I headed over to meet the co-founders, Katie Brown and Will Clayton. Thank you so much for coming uh, on on the ledge to talk about this. And it's a really interesting story because, as anyone who listened to my show for a long time knows, this is something that is not being discussed enough in the world of houseplants, sustainability. So I want to know, first of all, how this all started. You're starting this new brand. Who is it for and what's the kernel of idea at the centre of your business
2: Yeah, so Kevin Green has really stemmed from environmental concerns and sustainability is at the heart of everything we're doing and we will be constantly striving to improve that as well. Our ultimate mission is to have a positive influence on the houseplant industry. Houseplants have seen a fantastic resurgence over the last few years and obviously lockdown has helped that massively because people are wanting to bring nature inside their home and That's great, there's a wealth of benefits from health and wellness that 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 entails. The problem we've got is these houseplants aren't as green as people think. So the vast majority of houseplants that are sold in the UK are imported as fully mature plants from Holland and they are grown in peat. Now you and your listeners know that peat is such a phenomenal natural resource in terms of tackling climate change. Peatlands cover only 3% of the land's surface, yet they store 30% of the world's carbon, which is massive. It's actually twice as much as all the forests combined. And that's why peatlands have often been referred to as this Cinderella habitat. They're often overlooked and undervalued. And we want to change that. We want to raise, raise the voices, shout about peat, and educate people across the globe. Peat is being extracted for horticultural reasons. And the consequence of these damaged peatlands is that the carbon that is naturally stored within the peat is being released into the atmosphere. Now these damaged peatlands actually accounting for 6% of all global emissions. And the crazy thing is, peat does not need to be dug up for horticultural purposes, and that's where we come in. We are going to be using a recycled peat-free growing medium to, to grow our houseplants right here in the UK. So the brand, the company, it's for everyone. It's for everyone who is conscious of the impact that we are having on our environment and wants to make better, more informed choices. So by making this one simple change and only buying houseplants that are grown in the UK without using peat, customers can contribute positively to reducing our carbon emissions.
0: It's interesting, the government's got this peat ban coming in, but okay. I'm presuming that that's still not going to mean that House plants coming over from the Netherlands are going to be having the same rules applied to them. We're still going to be importing house plants from the Netherlands grown in peat. Is that is that right? That's absolutely right.
3: Yeah, and the government has just wrote back on commercial growers as well mm. on that peat. But just because the government's making a bad decision doesn't mean we
0: should. <laughs> Indeed, uh, you often hear sort of from the people who are rather sceptical about. Peat free. that, oh, it doesn't work, it's too hard. Obviously, you're hoping th- to prove that wrong. Um, can you tell me about how you're growing all these houseplants in peat-free? What's the system? How is it working? And have you had any problems or things that you've had to work out along the way?
3: Certainly. So essentially, people say that you can't grow houseplants effectively in peat because it's much cheaper to grow than commercially in peat. And it's a nice, convenient bit of scaremongering to suggest that you can't. What we grow in is recycled waste growing media, in our case mostly coir, but it's mixed in with natural fibre from other plants and other crops that have been grown previously in that growing media. The only slight challenge we had was in the, in the midst of, of summer, water retention wasn't quite what it was with peat, but the addition of a simple wetting agent has, has meant that we've now got very good shelf life while still having substantially yeah. better environmental c- uh, credibility than, than peat.
0: This isn't a tiny sort of mom-and-pop greenhouse in the back garden set up. Can you tell us a bit about your set up?
3: Sure. So we've got a 5,000 square metre state-of-the-art glass house, uh, fully benched, fully pipe uh, heated uh, externally and down the rows uh, using LEDs. Uh, We heat using biomass on the government's RHI scheme um, and we collect all the rainwater from the roof or our own spring-fed reservoir. So our capacity for the year is approximately 750,000 normal-sized houseplants.
2: Wow
0: that's it has a, got lot a lot of well stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I I having walked around it I can I can attest it is huge, and it's really we're not used to seeing that kind of facility in the UK for house plants. You know, when you go to the Netherlands, you see these huge glass houses uh, with with all these automated benches and things. Not so common in the UK. I think really I haven't come across anyone else who's doing quite what you're trying to do in this particular space. How are you going to get this message across to consumers? Because it's always been my thought that you know house plants. People have somehow managed to forget the sustainability side when they're, you know, trying to get their organic veg box and, you know, cut down on plastic. They're not really thinking about those houseplants and what might be going on sustainability wise with them.
3: So I think ornamentals in general have always trended a little bit behind food and what you mm. eat is going to perhaps be more at the forefront of people's mind. But it does follow in the environmental credentials. If you look at bedding, for instance, this year, one prominent supermarket went British-grown 95% peat-free. So you can see that the market is changing that way. And the biggest factor that will, will cause people to move to a more sustainable approach is awareness. Um, if nobody's growing in peat free then nobody's going to be advertising the benefits of peat free um, as we start to do that we hope that awareness grows and that people start to think more about the choices they make when they're buying houseplants.
0: how is that going to feed into the rest of the industry do you think you're going to be disrupting something that's going on uh, more widely in the houseplant business of plants being brought over from the netherlands and sold
2: that's absolutely our aim so um Will and I actually went to Ellesmere Trade Show a month or so ago, was it? And there's more than rumblings of sustainability and moving to peat-free. But at the moment, there's not a lot of action. So one thing that really, really shocked us was some of the trade stands were evidently growing their houseplants in peat, but they were sprinkling coir on the top of their nursery pots. Ooh. (laughs) That's interesting. at its finest. Mm. Um, So yes i think we need to be able to break through that greenwashing we need to be able to really tell the story of the importance of peat and get people sharing that message this is obviously we we are going to be the instigators of getting this message out there but we need people to to spread the word for us and act as a catalyst for bigger industry level change i think one other thing to add jane on the greenwashing um and potential customers looking out for sustainable aspects is there are a lot of houseplant competitors to us who are planting trees so for every order we plant five trees or they do the one percent planet give back actually they don't need to be doing this if they just leave the peat in the peatlands in the first place
0: and when you're i mean having been to the dutch greenhouses and stuff obviously they have plants coming in uh, as small plugs and things from all over the world um, and various processes going on. How are you actually choosing what plants you're growing? And is that being is that affected by sustainability concerns in terms of what actually works in your setup that
3: you've got? Sure. So you've got to be led a little bit by, by the market, what consumers want. If, if nobody wants to buy a plant, then we can't keep growing it, essentially. But there are some types of plant which we just don't really want to grow because they're not so sustainable so sansevierias for instance you've you've got to really grow them over 30 degrees in order to do that you've got to put in so much heat that you start to really lose the environmental benefits that we're gaining through the rest of our our production processes and uh, peace lilies as well spatsies we're not going to grow them because again to get into the stage which customers are used to you've got to spray them with a hormone towards the latter stages of production in order to get the flowers to all come at once and we don't really want to introduce that into our into our glass house and it doesn't really fit with with our ethos either
0: i know you've got a very interesting in a way closed system going on with your waste can you talk a little bit about that
3: well from our own production side in theory there is no waste because if a plant doesn't sell or if it doesn't work out for whatever reason um, in the growing environment it will be recycled with the growing media and then used to to grow other plants in essentially um waste on the consumer side is obviously something that's out with our control but no essentially all of our um plants that don't make it go back into the system in the form of more growing media
0: yeah which is as it should be right <laughs> it
2: yeah seems and just to add a bit of meat on the bones there just when we're talking about the recycle media what it is, it's just, in essence, it's a large washing machine. That's how you've described it, isn't it, well, to me before. The the medium that's been used to grow, in, our, in in this case, historically the glass houses were used for the ornamental flowers. So the medium that was used goes into this great big washing machine, it's heated, it's steamed to 90 degrees for 90 minutes, and it's recycled, it's reusable. So, yes, we're using coir. Well aware that there are questionable elements to using coir out there but we are no, not using anything virgin we are using recycled coir which i think just puts us a step above lots of mm. other people out there as well so where
0: is that coir coming from that you're
2: recycling so because the glass houses were used for the ornamental flowers obviously the way that they're harvested the growing media stays in the glass house and we've still got a large amount of stock of that about two years worth isn't it Will, um, to get us through for the houseplants. Once that resource has been used up we will be working with the soft fruit farmers, the strawberry farmers for example, and traditionally what happens is they will use coir for growing at the end of their season that will actually be dumped onto one of their fields. We want to take that, we want to utilise that in our sterilising facility and recycle it for houseplants.
0: So that kind of joined up thinking that we need, isn't it? Just that idea of like, well, here's that resource. Let's move that over here and use it. And therefore, we don't have to get coria shipped over from the other side of the world. It just kind of makes sense, doesn't it?
3: And we've we've worked very closely with the Environment Agency over the last two years to develop the protocols to allow us to sterilise other people's growing media for use in multiple crops as well. So
0: So are you hoping that you're going to kind of be trailblazers in this regard and that, you know, other given the fact that with Brexit and cost of living crisis and what's going on in the Netherlands in terms of their own crisis with horticulture, that you're going to inspire other people to maybe start doing something similar. Maybe you're going to be sterilising their growing media for them.
3: We've certainly got the capacity for it. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: Um, and what's what's next for house plants? How's this trade going to develop? Are you hoping that, that this is gonna be the start of a new kind of new era for, for the house plant trade in the UK? Surely there, there's so many factors coming in that means
2: change is afoot. Yeah, change is necessary. Absolutely necessary. And I've touched on it earlier, but I think the biggest element that we have to work with is greenwashing. Greenwashing is happening on multiple different levels at the moment, from the language that's being used, from our nursery to yours. Well, actually, that's from our warehouse to your doorstep, because Mm. we've shipped in from the Dutch nurseries. Um, You've even got the packaging itself, so lots of the packaging that's being used is to look organic and authentic. So you might have something that looks a natural cardboard, but it's got a plastic coating on because it's a care label, for example.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I can detest this because then I put things on my compost heap, thinking, "Oh yes, that's going to break down." And then you go through the compost heap and go, "Actually, no, that's that's two years ago, and it still absolutely looks exactly the same." (laughs) Which it's disappointing, isn't it? Because as you say, it's easy to think, "Oh yes, that that must be compostable or whatever," and then it's just the appearance. So what is the next thing in sustainability that you're looking at obviously you've you've done all this work with with peat free obviously there are still probably challenges you're facing are there other sustainability issues that you're still crunching away at to try to work out
3: i mean i think the really big one for me is currently pretty much all micropropagation is done in um parts of the world which have very low labor costs Mm Uh, It's an expensive process. And so then very small young plants uh, are then brought over to the Netherlands or the UK and grown on from there. There are some notable exceptions in the UK. So it would be lovely to find a way to develop that within the United Kingdom as well.
0: Presumably that's not that easy, though, given that your, your, your labour costs are going to be high, your setup costs. But presumably then you've got control of it.
3: Yes, so the real fact that would change that so our, our plants are no more expensive than any other plants you would, you would buy through similar channels. In order for, to bring that micropropagation into the United Kingdom, really you have to create a market similar to chickens where people are willing to accept that there's a premium for a free range chicken mm-hmm. over a battery chicken. Um, if we can get to the point whereby people say that's the effectively a free-range house plant um, and they're willing to pay a premium then you can really close the loop on the early stage of the plant's life
0: that's a really interesting analogy because you know when i look at going to supermarkets and see you know moth orchids for 395 you just think how i mean i know that there's a whole you know there's a whole nurseries orchid nurseries shutting down in the netherlands because of you know the the production costs issue but that can't be right that that plant co- that can't be working out financially that plant costs 3 Um 95 it's an interesting analogy with chickens and, and, and eggs because you know I go to the supermarket and I'm looking for my organic chicken and my organic eggs because I know that's better but I don't think as you say at the, the moment in the house plant business there's as much of a recognition of that I don't know how how do you change people's perception it's tough
3: you do see it in the food market. 25 years ago, I'm not sure you would have seen free-range and absolutely non-free-range or battery, whatever you want to call them, chickens displayed so prominently um, on the shelves. It would have just been a chicken. Mm. And, you know, eggs probably came first, and then you know, free-range eggs, and then free-range chicken meats became much more pro- prominent as well. And uh, hopefully over time, Monumental Market moves that way. And then that will allow us to do a lot more in the UK. But until that mm. happens, there's always going to be that slight challenge
2: yeah it's also the environmental lens that's been put on food more recently so Mm. the reason more and more people are having a plant-based diet is because people are looking at food from an environmental impact as well yeah that's absolutely true climate change
0: perhaps that's going to be the the thing that's going to make people realize um that we need to make some changes. So what would your advice be to somebody who... You know, I've got listeners all around the world, so some people who are listening are just not going to be able to be your customers because they're outside the UK. Um, But for anyone listening who's kind of looking at their... where they usually buy their houseplants, what kind of questions should they be asking? What kind of things can they look out for that are going to give them a hint as to how sustainable the houseplants they're buying actually are?
2: I think a lot of it is questioning the language. The language that's been used on the care labels... Um, if if it doesn't say peat-free chances are it won't be peat-free because like us growers who are peat-free want to be shouting that from the rooftops we're proud of what we're doing and we see it as a real benefit for the environment as well
0: what about uh, plastic we haven't we've talked a little bit about that but i'm thinking of harriet's plants who's obviously on a much smaller scale than you but you know she's using coir what's your
2: take on what, what are you doing with plastic pots? are you we are using plastic pots, mm-hmm. which are curbside recyclable. Okay. Um, at the moment, because of the structure of the coir pots and the, obviously the growing time from the glass house to shipping it out to customers, the only way we could do it would be carry on growing in plastic and there would be a, a high manor resource to then move that over to a coir pot. But also the feedback that we've had on coir pots isn't always that positive. So it feels like there's still... A solution to be found there to, to really make that as sustainable as possible. You kind of hope that there's
0: going to be some solution like the one you found for your growing media, some kind of plastic, some kind of closed loop system that sorts this problem out for us because it is, um, but it's great that they're curbside recyclable and I just hope that more garden centres and things are going to start being aware of this issue and i mean i've got a massive because i was coming here this morning behind my bin i've got a massive load of plastic trays i reuse all the plastic pots but the plastic trays i'm like i know that there's some garden center somewhere that
2: recycles these but i've got to like search it out take it down there the one thing we will be doing in terms of plastic is the decorative pots that we're going to be selling are from elo so they okay. are all made from recycled plastic and the energy put in to produce those is um, 100% wind turbine generated mm-hmm. as well. And then at the end of the product's life cycle, it's 100% recyclable. And I, in a way, we,
0: we sort of diss plastic, but actually plastic does have a lot of great values, doesn't it? And if you, as long as you're using it and you say it's recycled and recyclable plastic's got some real pluses for growing so we shouldn't dismiss it entirely but it's just as you say trying to find those connections to make it actually uh, something that works
2: and I think this is it we touched on it at the beginning sustainability is at the heart of everything we do we're not perfect and we know that but we like to consider ourselves considerably better than what's out there at the moment
3: and I think if we if if we try to be totally perfect we couldn't produce anything
2: no so you'd
0: never you'd never stop it's, it's
3: about doing the, the very best making a significant improvement to what's out there on the market as it currently stands and continuing to work as more technology becomes available at even better solutions
0: so what kind of things are you selling what kind of are your top do you think you're going to be your top stop sort of selling is it still the classics is it the spider plants the monsters, the syngoniums is that are those the kind of things that you that you're that you're Maxing out in your glasshouse right now.
3: Yeah, there's some really interesting calatheas coming as well. There's there's been a huge sort of wave of new types of calathea being developed by young plant growers. So there's some exciting things to watch out for there as well.
0: It's um, it kind of shocks me in a way that we're in the year 2022 and we're still struggling with these issues that really we should have. But we've been talking about for a long time. So I'm really glad that you're doing something about this and it's amazing really that there aren't more people doing this maybe there are maybe we've just not heard of them but it's just kind of amazing that there aren't more nurseries going down this route perhaps you've got that particular secret source of having your sterilization system perhaps that's the key for you i don't know
3: and i think it is something that's Mm. that's unusual to have your own sterilization facility certainly in the uk you might see a few more of them in the netherlands but It's a risk. It's a big, big risk to break away from the industry norms. There's established ways of growing, and if you want to go and do something differently, you're you're taking on a risk. And horticulture is like agriculture. It works on very fine margins. Um, I don't blame people for not taking that risk Mm -hmm. because it's their families and their their incomes and their livelihoods and their facilities that they've got to look after. We're in a position whereby we want to take the risk. We think it's worth it. Um, We think the issue is important enough. so we're going
0: for it do you think it's it's one of these things
2: where everyone's going to be watching you to see how successful you are People <laughs> will be keeping a close eye on us and uh watching with interest to see where the industry follows
0: yeah well watch this space it's fascinating to see what you're doing and um, i'm going to be certainly checking out how how it all goes in the coming year because uh it's fascinating to see that this is coming to fruition so thank you very much will and kate
3: Thank Thank you. you very much and for raising the awareness of it as well, Jane.
0: Thanks so much to Will and Katie. And maybe this episode's thrown up more questions for you about Pete. I'd be happy to try to help. So please drop me a line if there's anything else you want to know about Pete. And if you haven't done so already, please do listen to the rest of the episodes in my sustainability series, including my first episode on peat, where I talk to a carnivorous plant grower about his own formulation for peat-free carnivorous plant compost. Yes, it's possible. And in other episodes, I cover other issues within the sustainability realm, which are so important for us as houseplant lovers. And if there's some other aspect of sustainability that you don't feel I've covered enough or at all, again, let me know. I love to hear your comments and suggestions. Also, finally, no Q&A this week, but I do have a Q&A special coming up. So please get some questions in. I've had some really fascinating questions of late. I'm saving them up for my Q&A special. So do get your queries relating to all things houseplants over to me at ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com. That's all for this week's show. Until next week then, you and your plants have a great week. Bye! you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Kids by Komiku, and Oh Mallory by Josh Woodward. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details.